Wild Atlantic Law, a festival of legal ideas with a fantastic range of interesting speakers. Wild Atlantic Law will be held in Ennistymon, County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May. Booking is now open at wildatlanticlaw.com. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 41 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham, barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. I should have told them I was a barrister as well, Mark, so nobody would have guessed, even at this late stage. Mark, great to see you. And we got a great reaction to part one of our interview with Rory Carroll. And uh, we're going to run part two today. And that is for the for the legal train spotters out there. I think we're heavily on law this time. Or the, the, the legal aspects I, 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 of the I interview I think I managed to feature. squeeze in a couple of legal questions. You wanted to there, go yeah. straight to the trial. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think we, we, we deal with a, a lot of good stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, your expert evidence, etc. featured, didn't it? Absolutely. Forensics, fingerprints. The forensics are very good. And in particular, Richard Ferguson, QC, who represented yeah. Patrick McGee, who came from a completely different background to mm-hmm him and yet uh, McGee was very happy with the representation and I thought Rory Carroll was very good on that. So that's coming up uh, but first we're going to discuss three cases that you have identified on the Decisis website. In the first case this week the issue of adjudication in construction contracts arises. The adjudicator herein had made a ruling in relation to a payment dispute but one of the parties sought to challenge it by way of judicial review. This is the case of K&J Townmore Construction Limited versus Kyo and it's a High Court decision of Mr. Justice Toomey. That's right. So the peculiar thing about this, well, it, it, it basically dates back to the Construction Contract Act of 2013. And that changed the way that um, disputes with subcontractors were dealt with in construction cases. Because the problem very often was that if there was an issue in relation to work or payment, that, that the whole the whole project would kind of cease. So the purpose of bringing in adjudication under the Act was that the adjudicator would effectively make an interim award that would say, right, in order to keep this this, um, project ongoing, a certain payment should be made and then the matter can go to arbitration at a later stage um, in order to to determine the, the, the ultimate rights and wrongs. So it's it's a sort of it's like an it's like an injunction except that it's to do with payment of money. Um, but what happened here was that the that one of the parties um, was not happy with the work of the adjudicator, and because it arises under statute, they thought, "Oh well, we'll be able to judicially review this." But of course, because the because it's only an interim award, effectively, the the the, the high court said, "Look." That is not the purpose of judicial re- review because you have you have another um, course of action here. The appropriate form forum for resolving this particular dispute is simply to challenge the adjudicator's dispute as part of the arbitration proceedings. So they basically said you, you've okay. come the, you, you you shouldn't have brought judicial review. You should have gone by way of arbitration. Okay, fair enough. And I suppose clear guidelines going forward as a result of that. So finally, we look at a sentencing judgment where the court had to consider the offence of disposing of a firearm that had been used in a murder. The trial judge thought that the offender was already serving a prison sentence and therefore applied the principle of totality. You're going to have to explain that one, Mark. In reducing the sentence, uh, the Court of Appeal found the sentence, however, was too lenient. And this is the case of the Director of Public Prosecutions versus Merriman, uh, and the leading decision was given by the president of the court, George Birmingham. That's right. So, as you said, this concerns the disposal of a firearm that had been used in a murder. And what the sentencing judge said was that the appropriate sentence was six and a half years imprisonment. However, the sentencing judge 
was under the impression that the offender was currently serving a, 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 a another sentence and made this sentence consecutive to that. So basically, this sentence would have started on the completion of the previous sentence. Um, so on the basis of the principle of totality, which basically means how long that the, the offender is going to remain in prison altogether, he then reduced this sentence to four and a half years. However, it then transpired, I don't know how this error arose, but um, it transpired that the offender was not currently serving a sentence of imprisonment. And so the appeal court looked at this and said, well, clearly this is an extremely serious offence, disposing of a, of a murder weapon. Um, and said that in the circumstances that the original sentence of six and a half years was the appropriate one. So okay, that's so what they restored. So it's extended to six and a half years exactly. from four and a half. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I should just say that that is six and a half years imprisonment with the last 18 months suspended, as in fact the original one had been four and a half years with 18 months suspended. Okay, thank you for clarifying there, Mark. Okay, back now at part two of our interview with Rory Carroll. Silence in the fifth court. So if we can just look a little bit about the trial, I mean, first of all, his counsel, I suppose, is an interesting character, isn't that right? Uh, Richard Ferguson. Yes, it was astonishing conjunction that his Patrick McGee's defence lawyer was this QC, Richard Ferguson, who was a Protestant originally from Fermanagh. His dad had been a sergeant in the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And he'd been a unionist MP in the Northern Ireland Parliament in the late 1960s. And yet here he is you know, in the 1986 in the trial, representing the Brighton bomber, not just an IRA man, but the guy who, you know, who almost killed Thatcher. And because Richard Ferguson, he had been politics, he'd been very liberal unionist. I know some people think that's an oxymoron, but I mean, he, he, he had been. And, but but he he, left. he'd effectively been run out of Northern Ireland. I mean, he was part of the sort of Terence O'Neill sort of, uh, let, let's be a little bit nicer school of unionism and effectively told where to go by the people who didn't sympathise with Terence O'Neill. That's I mean, right, his house was burnt down, apparently by a loyalist mob, and so he ended up, I mean, he, he, he practised law also in Dublin, I think, as well as Belfast, but then he moved to England in the early 80s and became very successful. Um, he became one of the best-paid defence barristers in England. I mean, I think he's earning £800,000 a year in, in, in the 80s, and I mean, he went on to defend a whole spectrum of people, including Rose West... But Patrick, I did the maths. And, and so we have, this was the guy who was representing the Brighton bomber. And Patrick McGee is very, quite complimentary about Richard Ferguson. You know, he credits him as a lawyer with doing an excellent job of defending him. You know, really did his best to, to get McGee off. And McGee did it. Uh, what, what, what were the points of defence, Rory? Like, what did, what did Ferguson focus on? I mean, the evidence yeah. against McGee was pretty damning. You know, there wasn't a lot to work with. Did he, did he kind of go into philosophical yeah. defences and, no, you know, it was political a, crimes, all that sort of stuff? No, it was a very technical forensic defence and a genuine attempt, which could have worked to get McGee off by trying to pick holes in the evidence and just put enough doubt in the minds of the jury. And the, the thesis of the defence was that the police framed Patrick McGee. It was that, okay, the bomb has gone off. You know, the police go through their files of known IRA bombers and McGee is in, this, is, in this, is in the list. And his face kind of fits. I think, yeah, he'd be a good guy to, to get him. Now, at this point, the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four were still in prison. They had not been exonerated yet, but there was already enough, a lot of doubt um, an awareness of the, the fact that British police have and would do something like this. You know, they, they, they can frame and do, do frame people. And so his 
Richard Ferguson's thesis was that the British police des decided early on in the investigation, okay, McGee will fit, he can be our guy, our fall guy for this. Um, and so that they then transposed his fingerprints onto the hotel registration card uh, for his guilt. And secondly, that they found, because it wasn't even clear where the bomb had been planted. We knew that, you know, the guy who checked in as Roy Walsh had been in room 629. But was that really necessarily the case? Because if the bomb had been in another room, maybe it wasn't even him, you know. So they is able to kind of cast a doubt or try to cast a doubt on where the bomb had actually exploded. And also he tried to suggest that the British police, they're all very clubby. All these experts, the exhibits officers, the forensics officers, the fingerprint guys that they're all crucial links in the evidentiary chain, but also they kind of know each other, they kind of hang out, might go to the pub, and that they therefore could cook up a plot to frame Patrick McGee. But the, the only actual evidence linking Patrick McGee himself to the Brighton Hotel was the fingerprint, is that right? Well, that was the single most crucial damning uh, piece of evidence. And when you interviewed Patrick McGee, am I right, he said that he still reckons that his fingerprint had not been on that card. Yeah, it gets a bit kind of funny here. He, Patrick McGee admits that he did sign the hotel registration card and basically so that he is the guy who planted the bomb. But he maintains to this day that he did not touch the hotel registration card. Now, I've tried doing it myself. You should try, I mean, just get get pen and you try to, can, can it possibly do it? And because for him, it was a test of field terrorism or field craft. Can you do this without leaving a fingerprint? And I think, you know, he's... Either maybe embarrassed or offended that you know he, he screwed up because the idea is that he screwed up. So he says his implication is that he didn't do it. He did not leave his, his print on it, and therefore the implication is the British police must have planted it. But well, I mean, there is the alternative explanation. I mean, we know that the IRA was very heavily infiltrated. They may have known perfectly well it was him, and planted the fingerprint and used that in order to hide their sources. I mean, isn't that the alternative explanation? Well, the IRA were very infiltrated overall, but in 1985, 84, not yet, not as fully as they later be became. And also, the, the British authorities really had no idea, they had no intel at all on it. They just knew that they had a, a, a very thick, bulging file on McGee, that already lots of fingerprints from him from, 19, from when he was a teenager, breaking into shops in Norwich. Yeah, I mean, you think, since he admits that he signed the card... And yet he says as if like the police then got a lucky guess that they're going to frame him and then they you know, happen to frame the right guy, you know. <laughs> so Not unheard of. But despite Ferguson's best efforts, McGee was convicted. D did the jury take a long time to reach a conclusion? Maybe that's an unfair question, Rory. Yeah, but Five uh, hours. Five hours, okay. So there was something to be debated anyway. Um, so yeah, he, he, mean, certainly, he certainly created some small element of maybe, doubt. Certainly McGee felt that they, he did a, a good job, um, yes. Roy Ferguson defending him. And, and it's, he it's, said it's, it, it sounds almost like an OJ defence, you know, I mean, this kind of conspiracy of police. Yes. Uh, if and, the glove doesn't fit, you know, this sort of stuff. And Ferguson yeah. did confront on the stand, you know, policeman after policeman saying, I put it to you that you planted this or that you did that. And, you know, each of them, of course... Rebuffed wow. him, they said, you know. But he, um, after the trial, uh, McGee asked his lawyer, Ferguson, do you think I got a fair trial? And according to McGee, Ferguson said no. He thought he did not get a fair trial, but he didn't elaborate. Now, I tried when I was doing the research for this. I, Richard Ferguson, unfortunately, died some time ago, but I reached out to his widow, Rosa, to say, you know, did he leave his files? Did he have a diary? 
you know, is anything I could get. And she broke my heart. She said, what he did, he left a whole stack of stuff. He had so many files on all of his cases. Yeah, and I shredded them all. Uh, Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, because for different reasons, they've been around for so long. Yeah, um, so then maybe that's another reason why there's not that much of the trial in the book. Can I... No, Mark, please. Just wanted to ask you about the other piece of forensic evidence, the handwriting evidence. So the slip when he was signing into the hotel had an unusual letter E, and that was found to correspond with the letter E in a crossword that was done in the Glasgow flat they were caught in. Isn't that right? Except it was it wasn't a London. It was a flat in London, so that he a safe house. So yes, McGee because he used the uh, signing in on the registration card. Roy Walsh was the pseudonym, but he said your nationality English, and then the E in English. Yeah, this distinctive kind of line, extra line through it. And so the, the police kind of seized on this. I mean, they were put it on crime watch. Has anybody seen somebody writing an E in this way? I mean, it became a, a thing. And then in the investigation, they discovered that the IRA had a safe house in East London where there was a pistol and, and, and kind of IRA equipment. And there's also a crossword puzzle. And McGee was quite a, a cerebral guy. I mean, he, you know, he read a lot crosswords to know if it's the, the cryptic one or not. But, um, which, which newspaper was it? You know what, I've asked the cops this, I asked McGee that, I so wanted to know, is it the Daily Telegraph, is it the Daily Mail, I, I cannot get a straight answer from anybody, so I had not to... Not the Irish Times. Uh, alas, not the Irish Times. Um, so, yeah, in the crossword puzzle there was an E, and again, I've also asked the police and McGee, what was the word? What was, you know, you know the, the word? And again, that fragment of detail is lost to history but it, it, that E in the, in the crossword had the same signatory kind of extra line through it so this was another part in the evidentiary chain connecting McGee in this case to this IRA safe house in London that was being used for this new plot post Brighton and that also linked him to Brighton itself okay so he was convicted as you say jury deliberated for five hours and he was convicted and he got a huge sentence surprise unsurprisingly it was a huge sentence 35 years. 35 years. So, I mean, really, at that age, what would he have been? He would have been mid-30s. He, he, he was 35. And 35. as soon as the judge said, I sentenced you to 35 years, McGee thought, God, I am 35. He thought, okay, so I'm going to get out when I'm... And, and the judge said, like, minimum 35 years. So, he's, he's, so McGee thought, okay, I'm going to get out when I'm 70. And, he said my, and his dad had lived, or his grandfather, until he was like 77. So he just thought... You know, or, or, or 74. So, so he thought maybe I'll have four, five, six years of freedom at, at the end. And he. And I suppose we should say he was a married man, he had one child. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, he was looking at a long stretch. Now, the way he used his time, I mean, I think the, the phrase often used associated with, let's say, IRA prisoners, etc., nor meekly serve my time. He, he engaged extensively in sort of academic research, didn't he? he did a PhD while he was incarcerated. Mm. And then, obviously, political developments came to a head. Good Friday Agreement. And then he was going to be, like all other Republican prisoners, you know, he was going to be released as part of that agreement. Wasn't that the case? But there was a bit of a twist with the Labour government. They were resistant to him being released. Yes, because this, fast forward, he's been in prison for about 15 years. Then Good Friday Agreement is signed in 1998. And part of the agreement is that all paramilitary prisoners will be released. Um, and so they started the process. And then after about a year, you know, they're kind of working their way through, you know, the list of, re- of releases. 
and then they're getting to McGee. And for the Tony Blair government, that was kind of problematic because it was when the most, these releases are among the most controversial aspects of the whole Good Friday Agreement. And then to release the Brighton bomber, I mean, the guy who, you know, who almost killed Thatcher. So Jack Straw, who was then the, the Home Secretary, took a high court action to try to, to stop it. But, I mean, McGee himself, and I agree with him, thinks that it was a bit of... I mean, the, the judge rejected it, and McGee was released um, on schedule. And it was, a, it was kind of a face-saving exercise that the, gov- the British government knew he was going to get out anyway, but they had to, make, they had to go through the motions of trying to stop it. Okay, so a little bit of showboating. There wasn't any grounds on which they could really distinguish him from another Republican prisoner. Sure there wasn't? No, well, they did try. The, what they cited was that he had been convicted in an English jail, and they, on that reason, um, he should not be allowed out. And in fact, that argument really offended unionists in Northern Ireland because, you know, they, well, why should you distinguish between, okay. you know... Um, so, uh, so Brexit before Brexit. So he emerges out and he's had a very a fascinating career, if that's the right word, probably not the right word, but life, let's say, after being released. Let's talk about that. Another sort of aspect of this case that we're interested in is restorative justice. And Patrick McGee has developed, you know, he has toured the world and developed a particular relationship with the daughter of one of the victims of the bombing in Brighton. There was five people killed. One was uh, a man called Sir Anthony Berry, who was a Tory MP. He was killed in the bombing. And his daughter and Patrick McGee met and have formed a a sort of a relationship, not, not a romantic relationship, but a relationship where they've talked about the issues of restorative justice and, you know, a victim and a perpetrator coming together, etc. Rory, will you talk to us about that? Sure. Well, just a little bit of context. I mean, when you've come out of prison after that, it's, it's very difficult. You have, almost have to reinvent yourself. And um, I mean, the cliche is such a stereotype with that, you know, when the loyalist prisoners come out of prison, they all come out kind of all bulked up because they've been kind of working out in prison. And when the Republican ones come out, they've all got like kind of outish glasses because they've all become, you know, they've been reading books. And McGee kind of fit that stereotype because he became out as a doctor. He got a, uh, a PhD. And he could have, um, you know, gone into academia because, you know, he's written two books. And they're good. I mean, he's, you know, and he's bright. But no academic institution would touch him because of his notoriety, which is understandable. And so what, what could he do? He had no job. Like he, and he had to earn something. So he ends up working on building sites in Dublin, in the Celtic Tiger. I mean, now it's like 2000s. And, and by then, he was already in his 50s. And so he had a, it was difficult. You know, to, but then, out of the blue, Joe Berry, and she was the daughter of Sir Anthony Berry, who was Conservative MP and had been uh, a whip in the Tory party, who was one of the five people who died in the, in the, in the Grand Hotel. Um, she reached out to McGee after he was released and, asked, and requested a meeting. And her motivation was that she wanted to try and find some meaning in her father's murder. You know, why, you know, because she'd been a teenager when, when he had died. And so she had, I wouldn't say had a kind of a, you know, kind of a spiritual journey. She would go to India and, you know, like went into karma and try to find, you know, some meaning. So McGee very warily agreed to meet her. And this remarkable encounter where they, you know, he explained his own history of why he joined the IRA and I guess about the, the bombing and how he perceived the conflict and why he did what he did. And this led to a, um, a really remarkable friendship, which has now endured more than 20 years. And they formed this, I don't know, trivialize it as a, as a double act, but they appeared together on stage at events around the world to, discussing 
restorative justice, memory, healing, forgiveness. And what makes it interesting is it's not an easy kind of thing between them because it's not like he's found God. He hasn't. I mean, he's, you know, what he's found is that he's acknowledged that, firstly, the humanity of the people he killed, something that he, in the time when he did it, he kind of blocked that out, and also the cost to his own humanity of his actions. Yet he still defends what he did. He defends the Brighton bombing. He defends the IRA campaign as legitimate acts of war. And so this makes Joe Berry's view on this, you know, so it's, 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 you know, they're a relationship. It's not about some pat reconciliation. I mean, this is a very sort of live issue in the courts generally, you know, sort of whether you can bring the victim or the victim's family together with the offender. And I, I suppose what I find myself wondering is how at this stage does Joe Barry react to that? You know, the idea that he sort of says, OK, well, I understand that I killed five people. I effectively destroyed five families. And obviously there's still people like Norman Tebbett's wife who was paralyzed. You know, I'm sure there's a lot more understanding that he has But at the end of the day, he effectively says, I would do the same again. And how would, how does Joe Berry react to that? Well, she wrote the foreword to his memoir. And so I think, I mean, the subtitle of his memoir is Where Grieving Begins. And I think it's about building bridges. And they, that's the, the, the core of their relationship in a way, is how you can build a relationship of trust a mutual understanding, even when there remains that gulf. And so she's managed to do it. And it's been kind of controversial in that some people laud her and think that's been very a brave, enlightened thing to do. Others think it's very misguided and that you're giving a free pass to someone who still says that they, not that he would do it again as such, but yes, if the same circumstances were replicated, that he, he would still do it again or, or, or defend it again. So I know Norman Tebbett and some of the police I spoke to were appalled by, by, by what she's doing. But then, you know, there was another guy called Harvey Thomas. He was a Conservative Party member who survived. He was in the, the hotel. And, I mean, he was blown up and had a horrific ordeal, but he survived. And at the time, his wife was heavily pregnant. She was due to go into labor. She wasn't in the hotel, but, I mean, it could have destroyed that family. And yet he forgave McGee, uh, largely on religious grounds. And McGee struck up um, a beautiful friendship with Harvey Thomas, whom he almost killed, and his family. And the daughter, you know, who almost, who almost, and they used to, he used to visit them in England. So it's... It just shows, you know, people respond and react to atrocities and can react in so many different ways. I mean, he is truly a fascinating character. And I just want to say to everybody, we're probably coming towards the end, Mark, are we? We don't even put a clock on this. But uh, if anybody has a question, I think Rory's open to questions from, from the floor. So please indicate or maybe think of questions that you might like to ask, because you can. Please do. But, I mean, let's reflecting on Patrick McGee now is what, early 70s, maybe 71, 72. You met him to discuss his memoir, When Grieving Begins, came out. So that, that was the, the catalyst Except, and the start of this. Well, I, in fact, I did not meet him. It was a Zoom interview. Zoom, okay. It was during lockdown. Okay. And then, so, in fact, I've never have, met him. Have you got any reaction from him to the book? No. I emailed him. I mean, I, when I was doing the book, I asked him several times for a follow-up interview. And he very politely, firmly declined. And then I, just before I went to print, I asked, could I do a fact check? I said, look, can I give you a list of facts that I have in the book in case I've got anything wrong? You know, even banal stuff like the day it was raining. No, it wasn't. It was sun was shining, you know. But he again said no. And then since it came out, he, I got one message from him saying that he was not going to comment on the nature, on the contents of the book yet. 
but that he did want me to make clear to people that he didn't cooperate on the book, that he allowed me to interview him for an article in The Guardian about the Brighton bombing, but that my book came after that, and he wanted it clear that he didn't formally cooperate with the book. So that's the extent of the interactions I've had with him since. And and that's important, Rory, because, I mean, the detail you have in the book is incredible. The, the, the level of detail, I mean, the research you did is amazing. But there are still pieces of evidence, dramatis personae, who remain in the dark, shadowy characters that you haven't revealed the details of. Like, there's still a lot of information that cannot come out, even at this stage. Yes, I mean, for the, the IRA, the terminology they use, this operation had to be kept very tight. And to this day, is the same, because in theory... The other people, uh, McGee's accomplices, could be prosecuted and go to jail. And, you know, so they, you know, for them, and also what they call the England Department, that was the part of the IRA responsible for exporting the war. It was the holy of holies. You know, that was the most secret part. And, you know, they still, to this day, try to keep a lot of that confidential. And I, you know, at some point I was able to part the veil, um, but not fully. And And so... At some point, it was quite frustrating as a reporter. You want to know everything, you know, and then pick it. And you can't know everything in this. And so in cases where I couldn't, you know, there's certain people whom I think I know, X person or Y person, or the person who did this, but I, can't, I don't have the proof, so I don't name them. And also I just had to make peace myself with, you know, certain things that I don't know. And that, you know, with those areas are silences, in the story. I mean, what's extraordinary is the level of detail that you do have. I mean, the number of police officers who spoke to you and gave you really granular detail as to how they went about the operations is phenomenal. I mean, you know, you would expect almost the same level of secrecy from them because you can imagine if the circumstances were were the same again, you'd almost, if you happened to be a a paramilitary operative, you'd be reading your book to understand the police procedure as to how to track you. Well, that was a wonderful part of the research is once I was able to find these police ex-retired detectives and so on and gain their trust, then, you know, it just came pouring out of them. Um, And because they had, from their point of view, a good story to tell. They felt like they they got their guy, you know, like this is uh, the Scottish detectives in Glasgow, um, also some of the ones in Sussex who've been crawling through the rubble. And so they felt they had a a great kind of war story and one for which they never really received credit for. And so for them, it was a chance to revisit, you know, and as they would say, their glory days. And I enjoy talking to them because these guys, you know, they're now in their 70s, many of them, and they're all almost all kind of working class boys, you know, from, and they didn't go to posh schools, and, but they were, they'd been kind of bright kids and they'd gone into the police and they'd worked their way up the ranks and they got acquired various specialties, but they still retain that kind of working class kind of view of things. And they, you know, and they're proud of what they had accomplished in life. And I think they were very happy to have their, you know, their, their role in the story recognised. So, yeah, I, that was a, a fun part. Can, can I ask you just one, one anecdote, maybe to finish, or close to finishing? When Patrick McGee checked into the Grand Hotel, he gave an alias. But the alias was, it was, it was a name that would have resonated in Republican tradition because he used the name Roy Walsh who was a famous bomber from the early 1970s. Obviously, when he checked in, it was 1984. And you tell a story at the end where Patrick McGee actually encounters Roy Walsh. I'm not going to say any more. Will you tell us about that one? Yeah, so he used the pseudonym Roy Walsh because, as it turned out, there was, in 1984, when he checked into the hotel, you know. um, Now, at that time, there was a real Roy Walsh, IRA bomber, who had been convicted in 1973 of bombing 
the old Bailey. And I mean, there's a whole fascinating story. I could write a whole separate book just on that. But it's, um, I think it's basically an homage to, you know, a fellow bomber who had been serving time. Um, and also it was like a two fingers to the, 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 the people who would be hunting him, McGee, by, I think, referencing a former bomber. And actually, Leroy Walsh, he, he had used his own pseudonym in 1973. Um, he had used Tom Clark, who's one of the leaders of 1916. So it's kind of, in a sense, kind of passing the baton one to the next, you know, as, as, as they would see it. But anyway, post Good Friday Agreement, Patrick McGee is freed. He's walking down the Falls Road. And I was told the story by Roy Walsh, who himself had been released a few years earlier. And by then, he was this kind of crumpled grandfather figure. And he was selling kind of tickets, lottery tickets or raffles for, to raise funds for public and prisoners. And um, they stop. And they, you know, they're kind of literally bumping into each other. And, but they recognize, they know of each other. They've not been friends. And so they, he says, Roy Walsh says to Pat, Pat, have you got a pound, Pat? Give me a pound, Pat. Oh, do the accent. And um, so McGee fishes out and, you know, buys some of the, the, the tickets. And then Roy Walsh is writing the stub. He says, you know, what, well, what name, you know, will I, will I put on it, you know? <laughs> so, and I have this crack where they're, you know, discovering, yeah, I'll put in, you know, care of, care of Roy Walsh, you know? And then McGee goes off on, on his way. And to this day, the real Roy Walsh refers to Patrick McGee as the imposter. And Roy Walsh told me that they, he never asked McGee about why he had used his name, you know, that, you know, still IRA protocol. They, they still don't talk. Yeah, you know. Um, Take the secrets to the grave, I suppose. But final point, your, your conclusion to the book, uh, Rory, it's, it's, you know, you have to mention the dreaded Brexit, you know. And, and you kind of talk about kind of an irony, I suppose, you know, that McGee was, you know, unsuccessful in killing Thatcher, for example. He planted a bomb. But you sort of create a thesis, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I thought it was like you created a thesis that actually Thatcher's survival led to a, a hardening of, let's say, the right wing of the Tory party, which ultimately pushed Euroscepticism, which ultimately has led to Brexit, which has ultimately led to an economic border down the Irish Sea and pushing unity stronger than it's ever been. So. I think there's an irony that in Thatcher's survival, you believe that that has led to, you know, even a, a greater occurrence of potential Irish unity. Yes, and I wouldn't want to over-egg that, but, I mean, I, there, there are manifold ironies in this. And, I mean, also a, an additional one is the fact that, you know, I've heard other people argue that, in a way, Patrick McGee's bomb did kill Thatcher in that, after the bombing, her security details became much more onerous and her movements much more restricted, and that this compounded the isolation that you know that happened to her, especially in her third term. She lost more and more touch with people around her, her own party, and that this led, you know, her to her downfall. You know, she just kind of lost she lost the plot a bit, and that you know the the, the fact that she was almost assassinated had was one of the reasons that you know she got cut off from you know the people around her. But yes, the fact that she then ceded. I wouldn't say seeded Brexit, but I mean, certainly she encouraged that strain um, in, in the party. And we see where it's led to this, this day in Northern Ireland. So, um, you know, and you can add to that, of course, that arguably the IRA are the ones who, you know, did more than anything to delay a united Ireland. I mean, that's a whole separate 
uh, conversation right there. Okay, well, uh, very interesting thesis. Picking up on my, my friend Alan's question there, on our legal podcast, we always finish by asking people to recommend a book or a movie uh, to our listeners. And why should this be any different, Rory? So any books with a sort of a legal theme, but it doesn't have to be overly legal. Anything that you'd recommend to uh, our is, loyal listeners here in the tent today? There is one, and I, I'm just, I haven't finished it myself, but um, it's Jennifer O'Leary's book called The Padre, about Father Patrick Ryan, oh. who was, and he actually appears in this book, he's kind of a secondary character, who was this you know, priest from Tipperary, um, former missionary, who became the IRA's money man and conduit to Gaddafi in, in, in Libya and helped to source the timers that were used in bombings. Anyway, her book is quite powerful in that it's about, you know, she's interviewed him about why he did it. And in terms of the legal perspective, I mean, he, unlike McGee, is completely gleeful about what he did. And he says, if I have any regret, is that it didn't help kill more people. And frankly, it's quite, there's something monstrous, really, about it. I mean, his, you know, he's almost like literally rubbing his hands with, you know in recalling his greatest hits in terms of the bombings, including the Hyde Park bombing, that in which he, he had a role. And when he has that attitude, it's so kind of unrepentant. And yet he was never... I mean, the British knew about him, you know, all through the 1980s. And there's a whole big attempt to have him extradited from Belgium and then from Ireland. And Margaret Thatcher, in a sense, put her foot in it. I mean, she spoke, you know, said something she shouldn't have said in the House of Commons, which made it more difficult to extradite him. So there's a whole... Legally, I just think it's a really interesting time to revisit, you know, for example, why IRA suspects were not extradited okay. from Ireland. Um, and, I, yeah. you know, okay. and I, I think, anyway, so... Thanks. Yeah, no, de- book, de- de- definitely one to read. He also had a brother who was a Fine Gael County Councillor in Tipperary at the time, if I remember correctly. OK, we're got, we're, we've been told to wrap it up there. It's Our, our time is done. Can we just say an absolutely huge thank you to Rory for this incredible talk. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you again to Rory Carroll for joining us uh, at the Electric Picnic? And Mark, you know, the studio will never be the same again, will it? It's just not quite the same if we you just don't need have the, the roar rocks. of the crowd. The, the, exactly. the roar of the mm-hmm. crowd, you know, the Ave is vehement. Wasn't that mm-hmm. the line from Shakespeare? So next week, folks, normal service will resume. We'll be back in the studio and uh, we're looking forward to that as well. Before we go, I'd like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin. Can I say a huge thank you to Peter Rice again for the wonderful editing job on Rory Carroll's interview and making it sound so clear, really, when there was a lot going on in the background at the time. And also to Lee Brennan, who's recorded this for us and is doing a wonderful job as always. So that's it, folks. So for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we will see you soon in the Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. Wild Atlantic Law is Ireland's newest and most exciting festival of legal ideas. Come to Ennistime in County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May to hear a range of fascinating speakers. Have a look at the programme at wildatlanticlaw.com.